Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, Donald Trump crawled out of his New Jersey bunker last Saturday night and crawled into an Alabama cornfield to endorse crazy Congressman Mo Brooks for the Senate. But his return to the campaign trail didn't go so well. Trump was booed for urging people to get vaccinated. Brooks was booed for suggesting that people move on from arguing about 2020. And both of them were slammed for holding a super spreader event just two days after the local city council had declared a COVID emergency. But Trump's appearance proved that he's determined to play a big role in the 2022 midterms and may even be planning a bigger role for himself again in 2024. So where does that leave those leading Republicans who banded together to stop Trump from getting reelected in 2020? and vowed to rebuild the Republican Party without him? Good question. Let's find out. From Bill Kristol, one of America's top political commentators, and at one time, an influential leader of the Republican Party, chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle, founder of the Weekly Standard, but who became a never-Trumper and bolted from the Republican Party to form Republican voters against Trump. Among other ventures, Bill Kristol is also now editor-in-large of The Bulwark and host of his own podcast, Conversations with Bill Kristol. Bill Kristol, good to say hello and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. Thanks. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, what is uh, preoccupying most people in the news these days, and that is the situation in in Afghanistan, where Bill, uh, knowing you, I think you and I might agree or and disagree both on a couple of points here. But let's start with ending the war. Did did Joe Biden make the right decision to end the war in Afghanistan after 20 years? I don't think so, but um, I'm probably in a minority of Americans there. And I think, uh, you know, it was not a crazy decision at all. So it's defensible. And he campaigned on it, to be fair. So uh, that I, I've not bothered criticizing that. If he campaigns on it, he's going to do it. I think he could have laid the groundwork better. He could have gotten civilians out before all the military left. He could have kept Bagram open and so forth. And, you know, he made a bunch of mistakes. I do think it looks like it's going better now as we speak late Monday afternoon. And um, I hope it goes well. I hope we get, obviously, I hope we get all the Americans. I hope we get as many Afghans out as possible who want to leave, uh, not just the ones who are already at the airport. I think that's very important just as a humanitarian matter and a moral matter and a a matter of national honor, really. These are people who helped American troops, not just troops, but uh, uh, civil society organizations, the media, you know, all kinds of organizations. And these aren't just sort of random refugees who also deserve compassion and help where possible. These are people who've actually helped Americans at considerable risk to themselves. And so I, I really hope we go the extra mile there and don't just 
uh, say, oh, well, we got all the Americans out. Let's just kind of get out of there. Uh, but uh, probing a little bit, after 20 years, do you really think there's a possibility that keeping uh, whatever, 2,500, 5,000 troops there uh, w- could have made any difference and we could have eventually ended up with a strong central government? I think we could have ended up where we were for the last five years, which wasn't bad. And mm-hmm. then the counter argument as well, it was it was fading away. It was hollowed out. You couldn't have sustained that as, uh, as easily as one might think. It, it looked like it was being sustained for the last five years. So I would have been satisfied and preferred the status quo to the risks now of, of giving a big shot in the arm to the jihadist movement. This is victory in their in their original host country, so to speak, the one we drove them out of right at the beginning. Uh, I worry about Pakistan. I worry about jihadism elsewhere. And I worry about the Afghan people for whom we did make a lot of progress. We didn't build a very, maybe the greatest army ever and the greatest state apparatus ever, but a heck of a lot of Afghans uh, are living in a very different or have been living in a very different kind of society than they did before. I hope some of them come to the U.S., frankly, and continue living that way. And, I may, and others might be a force for, for change within Afghanistan. I don't think it's going to be quite as easy as some people think for the Taliban to just tell people who are used to almost 20 years now of, of education and relative mm-hmm. freedom mm-hmm. in terms of speech and a religious observance even in much of the country and and for women pursuing professions and education and so forth. And I'm so sure it's that you can suppress that for a while. Uh, you can oppress it for a while, but I'm not so sure it's going to be quite as easy as, as some people think to, to put that back to where should, it was. Should we give any credence to the Taliban's pledge that they're going to be uh, the kinder, gentler Taliban this time around? <laughs> not much, but I mean, we should hold them to it. And I mean, it'd be good if they were maybe out of just self-interest. You know, we don't want them killing everyone who yeah. worked with us or who tries to go to school and so forth. Right. I mean, uh, uh, they, they must have learned something, right, <laughs> during that 20 years. And I think if they want any, inter- it seems if they want any international um, recognition, right, that they're going to have to uh, uh, not be the Taliban of, of 20 years ago. So on the withdrawal, which you and I would agree ha- has been um, certainly messy, if not a disaster, w- what happened, Bill? Was it an in- intelligence failure about the strength of the Taliban? I, I don't well partly I suppose, but these things are hard to predict and and um I think we probably underestimated the damage that was done to the Afghan government and army's morale with trump's twenty twenty announcement and the you know and the negotiations yeah. that cut the Afghan government out from it, so it was pretty obvious we were just negotiating to hand the country over to the Taliban but once that becomes obvious, you know there's some truth to what the biden people have been saying that what president biden's been saying that you know if the government's going to fall it's going to fall and maybe it'll happen in two weeks maybe in two months but at the end of the day you have a tough situation i do think i just don't quite understand though the what seems to have been I mean, the president ordered it on april 14th uh the government all knew it was happening uh it does sound to me from people i've talked to and i'm curious if you've picked up stuff i mean the military just was said okay we we're, the president wants us out well, we know how to get out of places. We're a competent military yeah. at executing things like this. And if you want to get out, and safety is speed is safety in exiting. You don't want to give a lot of people heads ups. You don't want to have a lot of, you know, uh, tell all your allies and all your local friends in the Afghan army, some of whom might tell other people who would tell Taliban people, you want to get out. And so middle midnight on July 1st, I think it was, they leave Bagram safely, flawlessly, not a single American hurt, so far as I know. But terribly demoralizing, obviously, to the Afghan army and 
does nothing to prop up any remaining chances of either the civilian government or the Afghan army, you know, sort of having much in the way of morale, and then leaves all of our civilians who we sort of assumed, I guess, the Taliban, you know, would have enough time to get out. But you know, I hate to give Trump any credit, but, you know, when he said that, when he had, uh, said that tweet about how, you know, you really should keep the military to protect the civilians, get the civilians out, and then get the military out, there's some truth to that. I mean, so I, I think it was unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, there are some people, of course, there's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blame uh, thrown here in every direction, just about. But I've heard some people who were with the Trump administration to say this would never have happened under Donald Trump because that deal in February 2020 had all kind of, con all kind of conditions on it that uh, the Taliban would have to abide by uh, and it would have been totally different uh, had Trump been reelected. Do you believe that? No, no. Trump would have, I mean, he was checked by people from getting out including Secretary of Defense Esper, but I talked to him about a month ago, and I think he said this publicly, so I'm not violating any confidences. You know, he fought very hard to prevent Trump from pulling the plug, but one reason he was fired is that Trump even wanted to do it in that, you know, interregnum between November 3rd and January 20th, uh, and if he had had a second term, he would have just, uh, all the checks, and one thing people generally underestimate about a, about a Trump second term is it would have been much worse than the first term. No Mattis, no McMaster, no Esper, no even Bill Barr, you know, telling him, wait <laughs> right. a second, he can't do that. So God knows what his withdrawal would have been like, and he wouldn't have cared, couldn't have cared less about Afghans, obviously. And at least President Biden thinks we should let them into the, you know, help them out and fly them places and, and, and vet them, but then let a large number of them into this country as well. And, and Trump's, I guess, I don't know if he's weighed in personally, but certainly the Trumpists in the Republican Party have been beyond shameful in the demagoguery about you know, why we can't let in these Afghans, they could be terrorists and stuff, really disgraceful. Yeah. In fact, um, you you mentioned um, that that whole issue, which has divided the, the GOP and their response to the pullout from Afghanistan. Um, just the other night, uh, on the same night, uh, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram uh, both made the point that, yeah, it's good to get these people out of Afghanistan, uh, but don't send them here. If history is any guide, and it's always a guide, we will see many refugees from Afghanistan resettle in our country in coming months, probably in your neighborhood. And over the next decade, that number may swell to the millions. So first we invade, and then we're invaded. And is it really our responsibility to welcome thousands of potentially unvetted refugees from Afghanistan? All day, we've heard phrases like, we promised them. Well, who did? Did you? Did you? Yeah. Who did? Did you? Bill, I read somewhere that we accepted some 300,000 refugees from um, Vietnam uh, at the end of that war. Um, uh, this idea that we don't want the, the Afghan refugees, many of whom have helped us for years uh, in Afghanistan to come to this country, um, represents kind of the worst of America, doesn't it? It does. And the good news is the polls suggest it doesn't represent much of America, even much of Republican <laughs> sure. yeah. America. I think in this case, the Fox people are so wrapped up in their own nativism and people like J.D. Vance are and, uh, that they're really out of touch, even with a lot of Trump voters who may not be in favor of too much immigration in general, who may not think we should take in everyone who just is not just, but who's fleeing economic poverty or deprivation or a civil war somewhere that we weren't involved in. And to be fair, we can't take in everyone. So it's not crazy to say 
there got to be some limits. You know, we can't take mm-hmm. in every person from a civil war in Central America or Africa or someplace, the Balkans that you know that we we didn't really have much role in. This is so different. We we were there. these are the first tranche of people, first tens of thousands are people who literally worked with our either military or or non governmental organizations or quasi governmental organizations or others. So these are people who worked with us, and they're leaving because they want to be with us and not with the Taliban. I think that's a pretty good bet on them being pretty eager to be good Americans and to and to take advantage of America and to contribute a lot to America, as so many generations of immigrants, including the Vietnamese, incidentally, have. So uh, the demagoguery here is particularly inept. You know what I mean? They speak English almost by definition if they were translators, right? <laughs> right. So it's not even like taking in, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm liberal even on taking in refugees from places that are less, uh, that have had less connection with us and, and fewer connections with Americans. But in this case, it's particularly, it shows how deep though the nativist demagoguery goes in some of those people. But the good news, as I say, is I think the, the polling is, is pretty lops, lopsided on this. And some Republican politicians at least are, are saying the right thing. Um, and I hope the president's very strong on this and doesn't get it all deterred by, you know, some political advisor saying, well, you can't look like you're too, you know, soft on immigration or something. He, 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 this is the right thing to do. And it's important to do. I'm here in Northern Virginia, uh, which is the, several of the early flights have come into Dallas airport here. And several of the, yes. you know, waves of refugees have been uh, located. It sounds like just for two or three days, probably. At Northern Virginia Community College, which is a few miles from where I live, and then a few others at the kind of convention center near Dulles, also just a few a few miles from where I live. And um, uh, Northern Virginia has been people are extremely welcoming. People have been contributing clothing and you know foods, you know all kinds of things to various places you can go help. Uh, people have been offering rides to them, you know, from the airport and so forth. Um, so. I mean, I'm heartened by the sense among a lot of ordinary Americans that uh, this is the right thing to do. Do you think the president should uh, extend the deadline if necessary to get uh, those who deserve to get out out of there? Yes, yes. And the deadline's artificial, so. Right. Yeah. And I, I was pleased to see the president also say, and I, I think he said it for a political purpose, obviously, that uh, when these refugees arrive, those who haven't maybe um, been working with us all that that long are being vetted are being interviewed you know they're they're doing a national security check on all these people as well when they get to these interim points so uh, as you pointed out we're talking on Monday afternoon um, for this podcast it'll air Tuesday morning uh, and I just saw the Pentagon announce that in the last 24 hours some 16,000 American flights have taken some 16,000 people in the last 24 hours out of Afghanistan. So it looks like they're finally getting their act together, Bill. Looking ahead, what do you see the future of Afghanistan? What's going to happen now? You know, I don't think it's going to be a happy story, unfortunately, at least for a while. But uh, you never know. And um, as I say, I think our presence there could have had deeper effects than we realize. You know, I, I just think, again, an awful lot of people will be there. They they may not have the ability to fight the Taliban in the short term, but they it might be a little bit of an Eastern Europe in the 80s situation where under the surface, there's an awful lot of dissent and, you know, a, a desire for something much more resembling the freedom they, they mostly enjoyed over the last 
over the last 20 years. So, I mean, I worry about the Taliban be, and Al-Qaeda and others being uh, emboldened and, and other recruits coming there. I worry about Pakistan, which is a country I don't, you know, their government's behaved terribly and has, you know, been two-faced and so forth. But it is important that it not be totally unstable there. They are a nuclear power. Um, I worry about others, you know, worrying about our ability to to stick things out. And again, I think if Biden can recover here and make it at least a you know semi-orderly withdrawal and, and not the kind of scenes we saw in, those, in the first 48 hours, uh, I think that will help. You know, it's not unimportant that, okay, people, because people can understand, okay, America got out of this finally, but I, I do think the sort of pulling it together and being competent in the way we do it is, is pretty important, obviously for the sake of the people we're trying to get out, but more broadly for the sake of you know, how we look to other countries around the world. Our guest is Bill Crystal. Bill Crystal, who has his own podcast called Conversations with Bill Crystal. He's also editor-in-large of The Bulwark. Uh, Bill, what I'll talk about the current political scene here, uh, moving on beyond Afghanistan. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Laborers Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Over half a million strong, the members of the Laborers Union, uh, active in the construction area. That's their long suit, if you will, rebuilding roads and schools and high rises. And uh, boy, are they ready to rebuild our infrastructure as soon as that infrastructure bill is passed by Congress and signed by the president. Active in the energy area, building everything from solar collectors to wind turbines, the new energy field, as well as old-fashioned pipelines, and active in the government arena as well, particularly in the healthcare sector. All under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. We salute the members of the Labor's Union, thank them for their good work building America, thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod, and direct you to their website to learn more at liuna, L-I-U-N-A, liuna. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I 
we're back with Bill Crystal, our guest, uh, editor in large of The Bulwark, host of his own podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. Uh, he also became a, a never Trumper. We've talked with Bill before on our podcast, bolted from the Republican Party to form Republican voters against Trump. Uh, so, Bill, you and um, others like the Lincoln Project were successful in your goal of preventing Donald Trump from getting a second term. What's the goal now? So I, I, I'm glad we helped. We contributed to that outcome. We weren't very successful in liberating the Republican Party from Donald Trump, um, either in the primaries in 2020 or in the general election where Republicans did pretty well. They paid not much of a price, I think you could say, for being the party of Trump. Uh, they gained House seats and 150 Senate seats. And since Amazingly, since January 6th, when you would have thought people finally had enough, and some people to their credit did, like Liz Cheney, um, you know, most Republicans have sort of decided ah, it's, it's okay. And they don't love Trump, some of them, but they, they want to not alienate the Trump supporters. Some Trump supporters have gotten crazier than ever, and some people who hadn't been entirely crazy have gone even crazier. So <laughs> it's a pretty grim scene, honestly. I mean, you, I think I did not expect this depth of radicalization, extremism irresponsibility, demagoguery in the Republican Party. I mean, I was, and I think it is such a depth that you can't count on it to govern in any in any which way. And I, I'm very struck that Liz Cheney has come to that conclusion. I mean, people haven't noticed enough that she not only said, uh, you know, she wants to find out what happened on January 6th and before, she not only said that she wouldn't vote for Trump again, she said she wouldn't, I think she said she wouldn't vote for Kevin McCarthy for speaker because he himself has been so mm -hmm. complicit in the of what Trump has been trying to do. So she, yeah. I give her a lot of credit for taking, uh, you know, taking her own conclusion seriously and, and thinking them through logically. And I do think for me, that's the conclusion that the current Republican party just can't be trusted to govern. doesn't mean any individual Republican shouldn't be elected to the house of the Senate necessarily, or maybe, you know, governor Larry Hogan of Maryland or something. But, um, but as a party, it is not a reliable partner in guiding this democracy, which puts a huge burden on the Biden administration to succeed, I think. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, they, it's really important, I think, for the country that, but, but I don't mean succeeds in everything he wants to do, but generally speaking, be a successful administration so the Democratic Party can remain a, a successful and serious governing party. What would it take? What would it take to, to break the Republican Party from Trump uh, and get back to what it was when you and I were out debating as a Democrat and a Republican? <laughs> You know, it's a, I don't know, you know, how politics is you don't know until you, you're powerful until people test your power and defeat you, which is why the Cheney election in Wyoming is so important. Uh, the primary, I went to Philadelphia last week and did a little event for someone who actually I've known for a long time, Craig Snyder, running as a non-Trump Republican in the, for the Senate, in the Pennsylvania Senate race with, I think, four or five Trump Republicans. He's an underdog. He's not that well known, but a good, very good resume, but um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see if someone like him could catch on a little. It turns out there's a market for a more old-fashioned, you know, Dick Thornburg, John Hines, uh, Pennsylvania Republican, uh, for maybe 20%, 30% of the party. Um, be interesting to see if that's the case or whether it just becomes a Trumpist battle and uh, about who can be the most demagogic about who can refuse to accept the election returns, who can be the most demagogic about Afghan refugees and, and so forth. So I think we'll see. We'll have a lot of tests of this in the primaries in 2022, just as we'll have a lot of tests 
of where the center of balance is in the Democratic Party in 2022. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because there is certainly an effort on the part of the Trump supporters, the, the Trump PACs, uh, to uh, identify and go after and try to defeat any Republican who dared criticize Donald Trump or break with him in any way. Liz Cheney is one of the targets. Lisa Murkowski, obviously, is another one. Uh, Brian Kemp in, 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 in Georgia. So either governor or Senate or congressional candidates. Um, is there a parallel effort to um, identify those who have stuck with Trump and try to defeat them, particularly those, for example, who voted to overturn the Electoral College vote on January, January 6th? Yeah, I mean, of course, that would be the majority of the House Republicans. Oh, that's true. Now, there will be primary challenges, and I've talked to several of these people, and we'll try to help them a little bit uh, against some of the most egregious Trumpists, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be tough in those districts, but I think it's worth showing the flag. And there will be open seats and redistricted seats uh, and open seats even in the Senate where I think it's less it's it's less uphill, you know, where they just have a, a, an open seat race and maybe a more traditional Republican, especially one who hasn't been never Trump, but isn't really pro-Trump and just wants to get beyond Trump, he would have a reasonable chance. And so I, the party could end up in a horrible place in, you know, 14 months. It could end up in a, you know, not great, but not terrible place. It could end up in a decent place. But I don't know, the degree to which everyone feels compelled to sort of accommodate the uh, craziness on the right is pretty is pretty worrisome. And the degree to which and I hold the Republican elites really responsible for this, the degree to which the Republican elites are willing to tolerate that, and therefore they never really make anyone pay a price, right? So uh, yeah. Yeah, that's what really makes this possible. So if you're Kevin McCarthy, you think, you know, I can kind of straddle, I can be totally irresponsible at the election, I can just duck on vaccines, I can let Liz Cheney be purged and have Elise Stefanik come in saying just unbelievable things. But I can also privately tell the business guys that I'll watch out for their interests and, and stuff. And I can get along, you know, I can sort of manage this thing in a way that maybe makes me speaker. So I, I think until someone says, no, it's not acceptable for you to be even, uh, you know, not just fanning the flames, but even sort of tolerating the kind of demagoguery that's going on, that you need to really denounce it, at least sometimes, uh, it's going to be hard to, 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 to rein that in. Well, you mentioned Kevin McCarthy. It's a, uh, I find it curious that Kevin McCarthy, the one person who's been purged, right, is Liz Cheney. Right. Uh, but nothing about Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Bobbert or Mo Brooks or go down the list, Andy Clyde, right, who said some outrageous things and Mo Brooks even saying he understood why the guy brought his pickup truck with a bomb here to the Capitol last week, right? Yeah. Yeah. And McCarthy. Total silent on that. I mean, you must have known Kevin back in California, right? I mean, it's it's kind of amazing, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, he's so obsessed, it seems, with uh, being speaker, right, that he'll put up with uh, anything rather than lose one potential vote for speaker. By the way, I mean, this is a little tangent, but I don't think he'll ever be speaker. I, huh. uh, even no matter how close he sticks to Trump, I think given a chance that the uh, – the really hardcore Republicans will will um, uh, will not support him, like like the last time they didn't support him either, right? So, um, how how about Donald Trump himself? Do you see him as the inevitable candidate in twenty twenty four? 
I mean, you watch him in one of these rallies. He's not that impressive. He, you know, a lot of his, uh, he's a little older, first of all. And a lot of that oomph came from being president and Air Force One and all the kind of hoopla. Uh, having said that, he still can turn out like a lot more people than anyone else can. And he's a way ahead in the polls. And a lot of the others will be nervous about challenging him. So, you know, if you had to bet, you'd say he's more likely than anyone else. But I, I don't think it's inevitable. And again, it's a, it's a long time in politics, obviously. And so um, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I wish I could say much more certainly that no way. You know, after January 6th, the correct answer, if the Republicans were a healthy party, the correct answer to your question after January 6th would have been zero chance, no way, out of the question. And that's certainly not, it would have been like asking if Richard Nixon could be the nominee in 1977 you know, or 78. It's like, no, he might get a little rehabilitated, but he's not going to be like a nominee. You know? uh, uh, and so I'm mean, leaving aside the two-term thing and everything, but um, or Spur Agnew or something. But, you know, uh, with, with Trump, he's, he's, he's there and they're paying court to him and various state chairmen, the degree to which the Trump is... If all the idiocy of it, they're pretty uh, determined and somewhat organized. And so they do take over state parties and county parties. And, oh, yeah. And uh, committee, county committees and so forth. And so it's not like they have no power down at the grassroots level. And, and you see this in school board uh, elections and also in the meetings. And you think again, you look at one of those, these people screaming and yelling in the really terrible way. And, and you think, okay, surely that turns off their fellow citizens. But mm -mm. I don't know, maybe not. Doesn't seem to. But even even though nobody will say, uh, I'm going to run against Trump, there's still a gaggle of Republicans out there who clearly are positioning themselves to run if he doesn't, right? And we're talking about the Ron DeSantis right. and the Ted Cruz and the um, go, go down the list, I guess maybe even Nikki Haley or Greg Abbott's of this world, Josh Hawley's. Um, do you see, is any one of them, do you think, the likely nominee if Trump is not? By the way, I should have mentioned Mike Pence. <laughs> How could yeah, I forget well, Mike Pence? Do it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. um, and I, who knows? It's so, um, it's so, you know, such so cra crazy and unpredictable. I think in principle, DeSantis or someone like DeSantis, another governor who's pro-Trump, but not too associated with Trump, didn't have to defend him much because he wasn't in Congress, can the business guys can look at him and say, well, look, he governed a big state and made some mistakes. Yeah. Now, I think DeSantis looks stronger three months ago than he does today with, with what's happening down there with COVID. And uh, maybe one of the other governors will emerge who's less less uh, well-known now or, or even just uh, so someone who becomes governor next year or something. Um, pretty hard to tell, I, I think. You know, look, look at Trump's emergence in 2015, 2016. So... Uh, I mean, if Trump runs, I think there'll be fewer challenges. It'll be more of a, there'll be someone who's really not not Trump and then someone who's kind of in between not Trump and Trump and whether you want to other people in Trump. Well, if it's a, if Trump doesn't run, it'll be totally wide open. And I'm sure, I mean, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene, all those people will try. Why not, you know? And they won't get no votes, right? I mean, if it won't hurt them, you know, they'll just increase their ability to, to uh, you know, get people's money through email and self books they didn't write and so forth. So, I mean, the degree to which it's become a giant money-making machine, a grift machine, as well as a, uh, you know, a pathway to celebrity uh, on the right, people don't quite, people who aren't in that world, I'm not in it, but I still know a few people who are kind of close to it, you know, uh, I have a sense of it maybe, people don't appreciate just what a massive uh, enterprise it is in a way now, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and one problem here is that, liberals and their friends of mine 
and I, no, I don't think I fell for this, but they, three years ago, four years ago, people were going into the Trump administration and a lot of liberal friends of mine, and there were some of the decent people or members of Congress were sort of sucking up to Trump Republicans and friends of mine were saying, well, what are they doing? Don't they understand this will kill them? This will kill their long-term prospects. They're going to disgrace themselves. Mm-hmm. So the taint will be so great. And I remember saying, I don't know, maybe, maybe it should be. But I'm not so sure. Maybe they'll do this for a year or two. They'll be Trump's press secretary, and you know what? They'll come about out of it with speaking engagements and with uh, Fox News contracts. And then my, my liberal friend would say, "Well, but they won't be really acceptable and you know respectable company." Uh, to which the answer is, a at some point the kind of Fox News et cetera bubble becomes big enough that it's its own respectable little world where you can do very well. And B, it's not even true. I don't think that they're excluded from respectable company, you know? I mean, here the business world and the celebrity world and stuff is in a way almost too tolerant, you know? I mean, you can you can have just lied for a year or done pretty outrageous yep. things for a year and, and you know, you, you still... Uh, get invited to speak to corporations and maybe to be on a couple of boards. Maybe maybe they're the boards of the right wingers, mm-hmm. not not the you know not Coca Cola or something. But I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm struck how much people. If you're a young person without any scruples, without much in the way of principles, it's not obvious to me that you don't think you know being Trumpist is a pretty good path up. I think I'm going to start climbing that ladder. You know, so that means that there's a lot of people out there climbing that ladder. You know, it's not just about a random bunch of people who signed on with Trump at the beginning, not a bunch of diehards. Uh, that is a subject that, uh, uh, there are going to be a lot of, uh, academic papers and a lot yeah. of books written about and a lot of research, just how, how, uh, the American people did put up with so much, right. And being willing to tolerate so much and excuse so much. Um, and just look at the, all this second thinking about January 6th, you know, right. even the idea that somebody could get away with saying, this wasn't so bad. It was just another day of tourism, you know, in the, in the Capitol. I mean, unthinkable that somebody could say that and, uh, and get away with it, which leads me, I guess, to my wrap up question, Bill. I mean, you and I have been around this political system a long time. I know a lot of people today who really are very smart people, but really pessimistic that our democracy can survive or will survive. Are you? I mean, I'm worried. I'm not pessimistic. And these things can change. And they do tend to be somewhat cyclical. And it's sort of like the stock market. When everyone's bearish, you should buy. And when everyone's bullish, you should sell. You know, They're in the late 70s, everyone said, oh, my God, we're all falling apart. And you know, we won the civil, we won the Cold War. And we had Reagan. And then we had Clinton, pretty successful administrations and so forth. So. Um, I, you know, I, I know, I think there's plenty of possibility of recovery, plenty of, uh, we have plenty of strengths. I mean, we are a very impressive country in so many ways. Uh, we have you know, so, uh, technology and, and the business world, a ton of strengths. The military is extremely impressive. I think immigrants is such a huge strength. One reason I've become so even more kind of liberal on immigration is just, this a huge comparative advantage of ours over so much of the rest of the world. Um, so no, I'm not. I'm not pessimistic, but the, the institutions need to be strengthened and reconstructed, and people need to be, you know, we to be able to help people get reoriented towards them in a healthy way. And I am struck among some young people the the, the charm of the kind of extremism, the radicalism, more on the right, I'd say, but somewhat on the left a little, a little bit, you know, is is dangerous. I mean, that people are sort of tempted to. Uh, who needs all that old-fashioned free speech and due process yeah, and right. rule of law stuff? And it's much more exciting to be 
toying with, you know, like the allure of a kind of uh, the fascism of the right, or as I say, there's less of it on the left, but a certain amount of that on the left too. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I worry. It's, it's good to be alarmed and worried, I think. And there's a lot of work to be done, especially on the Republican side. But then it's very important that liberals govern well, and, and which for me means, you know, in a, often in a somewhat moderate way and thoughtful way. And, uh, and I, I'm a little encouraged about that. I don't know about you, what you think about the, your, your party there, the Democrats, but I think they're doing okay. Don't you think so? I do. I do. And I think Biden is a, you know, it's a steady hand. Um, uh, and he is really trying to, uh, identify problems and solve problems and get things done. And to the extent that he can do it with some bipartisan support, he will do it. Um, which I think is refreshing. Certainly. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I also believe if he gets, he got the stimulus done, uh, if we could get through the Delta variant, uh, and get this COVID thing behind us and he gets the infrastructure bill and even a bigger bite, the budget bill, that's a, a heck of a lot of legislative accomplishment for a first, first term president, even in the first year, or especially in the first year. So, um, I think to the extent that he can get things done, you know, it gets the country back on track. That's good. That, that that's good for us. And now, if we can get a uh, uh, a strong, intelligent, uh, thoughtful, reasonable Republican Party back, Bill, then we'll really be in business. Yeah, yeah that'll, that'll happen after that afterwards. But for, but it would be it is actually the single most best way people ask me, you ask me, you know, how do you get a decent Republican Party back? The single best way is to have a successful and strong Democratic Party that defeats Trumpism one or two more times. And then yeah. finally, people on the other side say, OK, I guess we can't get away with this anymore. Well, with your help, Bill, we hope you'll accomplish that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Bill, for your time today and all your good work over the years. Thanks, uh, Bill. It's my pleasure. Good to be back in touch. And that's it for today's podcast with uh, Bill Crystal looking ahead and speaking about looking ahead. What a busy week we've got ahead of us here in Washington, uh, in the Congress with uh, the House of Representatives back in session to deal with both the $1.2 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill and the $3.5 billion budget plan. Plus, we'll keep our eyes on the exodus from Afghanistan. All of that coming up this week, and we'll wrap it all up Friday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod with our Reporters Roundtable. So meanwhile, take care of yourself, but come back and see us end of the week on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod for our Reporters Roundtable. 